We're in Matthew chapter 23, so you can flip while I'm kind of doing this little opening intro. Um, but just to uh, try to connect real life as we, as we think real life to what's going on in here, a um, little side note, um, what we read in the scriptures are real life, and it totally informs how we go out and live. But this week has not, it's been a crazy week, has it not? Like bombings in Boston on Monday, and then a fire in Texas, both involving destruction and, and, and um, sadness. And then if you're like me, I'm tracking through the news, have they found him, have they found him Thursday night, they find him, they get the other guy on Friday. So it's like a lot of big things are happening this week. And so um, when we come in and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 23, uh, I'm not going to talk about Boston, besides right now, or Texas at all. And so it's easy for us to think when we come in here to think, well, since all this thing's kind of going on, I, I kind of leave real life out there. I go into here and I, and I go to pretend world where it doesn't apply to real life. And I hear about stuff and then I go back out in real life where things are crazy. And I want to make sure you're not making that, that wrong assumption that what we're doing when we come in here, based on what's transpired this week or any week in your life, when you come in to church on Sunday, um, this is a gathering to, to focus on what truly gives you life. This is real life. We're focusing in on Jesus Christ, his good news of the gospel that he was um, put forward for us on the cross. And if we put our faith in him, that if we confess our sins, repent, and come to Christ, then we go out and we live real life. So everything we study here is real life, and it informs the way we think and act and move and um, every day that's going on there. So as we think about terrorists, we say, we want them to meet Jesus. This is what we want. And we want them to be brought to justice because God is a God of justice. But we want them to meet Jesus. We, we don't say crazy things like, I hope they get the death penalty right away and no one gets to tell them about Jesus. Like, we want them, sadly, we want them to meet Je- We want them to uh, not experience the death penalty so that they can have longer life to meet Christ. We want everyone to know about Christ. So it, I just wanted to kind of point us into um, the scriptures to help us say, this is real life right here. And it informs how we think and live and act and move and everything that's going on. So when we come here, we're focusing on our only, only hope, which is Christ, to go back out into the world. Um, anyway, so I'm going to pray, and <clears throat> we're going to jump into Matthew 23. If you're unfamiliar with 23, I've been kind of like looking forward, anticipating, and scared of, and not really, really ready to preach Matthew 23 for like a year and a half. Um, because here's a new word for you. This is where Jesus excoriates the Pharisees. Excoriates just means like a, a verbal tongue lashing. No violence, no, no, no hands on, just all verbal. He excoriates them. He, he gives them a big time verbal tongue lashing. And so I'll use that a couple of times just so we can drive it home. I like to drive home a little vocabulary here. And so I'm nervous about the fact um, when we read this and we go through this, uh, here, here's kind of the challenge. Jesus is excoriating people that aren't Christians that think they are. And I have to take that and connect it to people that hopefully are in Christ and not feel excoriated. So you're like, well, I'm not coming back there, but like encouraged, right? So there's a little bit of a, of a goal that I have here. Um, and it's, the, the sad part for me is I preach a long time, which is my downfall, and um, it's 39 verses. And so I don't want to preach, you know, 20, chapter 23, part one, and then say, come back next week. Part two of excoriation next week, come back again, because everybody's like, going to have to miss next week. I got to go to the beach. So like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it all into one sermon. And so it's just one week of excoriation. And I'm not even going to do that. I'm going to relate it so that it's actually uh, a challenge, not 
it is challenging, but also hope-filled for all of us as we go out this week and, and live life um, based on what we hear, how Christ talks to these particular people. Just as a, a, a general idea of how it breaks down, if you're looking at chapter 23 with me, you can see verses 1 through 12. Uh, it says right there in verse 1, it says, And Jesus said to the crowds and his, to his disciples. So the conversation of verses 1 through 12 is directed towards those who are his disciples. Um, and then there's a, there's a shift in language and a shift in tone right there at verse 13 where it says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. So he's speaking to a different person now, and he's going to pronounce a series of seven woes. There's an eighth one, which we'll talk about. There's a series of seven woes from 13 all the way through 36. And uh, we'll talk about what woes are, but that's not good news. Um, and so what I'm going to do is take that entire chapter and present to us some cautions that we as Christians need to make sure that we don't have in our life. So <clears throat> I'm going to pray. Uh, there's a definite need for it, and then we'll, we'll jump in in Matthew 23. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we come to the Scriptures this morning, you've promised that they can do so many things. They can convict us. They can train us in righteousness. They can show us who Jesus is truly and rightly, increase our understanding of who he is. They can ignite a passion in our hearts for Jesus. They can cause us, if we're not believers, to become Christians because we see who Christ is. There's so many possibilities of things that can happen. And it's easy for us to think that this doesn't apply to everyday life, but it it actually is real life, and it applies to everything that's going on. And so I pray that as we come to the text this morning, you would open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to receive from you by the power of the Spirit Um, what it is that we need to hear from you so that we can be changed, so that we can trust Jesus, we can believe the gospel, and go transformed to live a life of worship for you this week. We need this. We need for you to come and remind us of the good news of, of the gospel, the good news of Jesus and what he's done for us. For people that are Christians and for people that would, would say they're not Christians. We all need to hear this message so that we can be saved and so that we can continue in the faith. So come now, Lord, and do these things for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this section, we've, as we've been going through the book of Matthew, we've kind of narrowed down into a couple chapels, chapels, chap, chapters, and I'm sorry, and, and entitled a few chapters at a time, little subtitles. And so this particular uh, set of chapters that we've been going through, which started um, back in 21 uh, through 23, is called the King of Jerusalem. So in chapters 21, 22, and 23, what Matthew, as he's writing, and anybody know who Matthew wrote to, the audience he wrote to? Yes, Jews. Y'all are getting, see, it's not weird. When we all say it, we're not like racist. So um, Matthew chapter 23, he's, Matthew's writing to people who are Jewish because he wants them to see, because they were new the Old Testament. He wants them to see the person that the Old Testament's talking about is Jesus. Jesus is that Messiah, and you need to trust Jesus and put your faith and be converted. And so um, as he's going through this 21 through 23, he's writing this particular section to people who are Jewish and saying, Jesus is the king of Jerusalem. And so he has that triumphal entry as he comes in on a donkey and we, you kind of maybe if you don't, you can look back at 21. I'm not, I can't preach that right now. And so here at 23, <clears throat> this is kind of the pinnacle of this section, King of Jerusalem, where Jesus is going to draw very near to these particular people who are Pharisees and Sadducees and help them see that he actually is the King of Jerusalem and help them see the major distinctions between Jesus 
and the Pharisees and Sadducees, religious leaders, scribes. At the particular time here, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all these people, they were the, uh, the rulers over the people of Jerusalem, the rulers over the Jews, the rulers over the Israelites. Um, and Jesus is trying to help them see he's actually the true king, the true Messiah, and going to show the major contrast to all the people there of the differences between the re- religious rulers, the Pharisees, and him. So that's what this whole chapter is. And this is the pinnacle. We've been driving into this. So it's been amping up. And so Jesus is going to use very, I mean, very sharp, sharp language. He's going to excoriate them. So um, just so you can kind of know some things about the Pharisees, <clears throat> um, the Pharisees can be thought of, the word can be kind of translated as separated. So they separated themselves out from everybody because they thought they were so much better. They, they really believed that they were just God's gift. They, were, they thought they were awesome. Now here's the key that we need to know about these people that are Pharisees. Um, on the outside, we must be really clear. These people morally, in, in terms of society and, and people in society, these people were impeccable when it comes to their morality. They, they lived great lives when, when, in society. They, they would never be um, thought of as, as bad people. They weren't robbers. They weren't murderers. They weren't adulterers. They, twi- they fasted twice a week. They gave 10% of everything they owned down to their spice rack. Like they would twirl around the thing, say, oh, we need to get some mint here. Just ration out 10%, stick it back, and like bring it, dropping in the offering. Like we got to give 10% of our spice rack, which was not even required, but they would do it anyway. So when it comes to societal morality, we would all say, well, these guys are amazingly um, moral. But theologically, when it comes to their morality, as Jesus addressed back in the Sermon on the Mount, their hearts were so far from God. Their hearts were so dark. The only reason they did those things was because they were more interested in them being glorified and not Jesus. So theologically, they were wickedly dark. But in, in terms of society, their morality was impeccable. So that's why when people are hearing this, they're looking at the Pharisees and they're like, the Pharisees are great. They should be great with God. On the outside, they do all the things that God wants. And so when we're looking at this, we should say, well, then, if they weren't robbers, if they weren't murderers, if they weren't adulterers, and they, they weren't gossips, or maybe they were gossips, but they, weren't, they, were, they were fasting, and they, they, they were giving 10%, doesn't God want us to do that? And so if we're doing that, and they did that, then how are we any different? Like, if that's what God wants them to do, or God w- wants us to do, and they were doing it, aren't we really the same if we're doing that stuff too? Well, here's the difference. This is the major difference. And this is what I'm talking about, the big contrast of what's going on between Jesus and the gospel and the Pharisees. Um, they were doing it because they thought by doing those things, they were earning a right relationship with God. They thought, if I do all these things, God's going to be so happy with me that he is um, under compulsion. He has to say, well, you've got to come to heaven. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? You're perfect. You're amazing. I have no choice but to bring you to heaven. And that's, that's the wrong understanding of how um, we go to heaven. That's the wrong understanding of how sa- salvation happens. Instead, for us, we do those same things morality-wise when it comes to society, but Christians up front say, fr- from the very beginning, we say, I am bankrupt sinfully. I, I am a robber. I am a murderer. I am an adulterer. I'm all those things. Because we know adultery isn't just the act, but it's, it's, the eye, it's the, what the heart wants when it lusts. So we know I'm all those things. And so from the very beginning, we say, I am those things. And so... The only hope I have is Christ. So we confess that we're a sinner. We ask Christ to forgive us. We, we 
trust him that his work on the cross or his death on the cross was the punishment that we should have had. He lived a perfect life. So when we trust him and we say, Christ, forgive me of all my sin, I put my trust in you, then his perfect life then is the theological word imputed, given to us. We are declared to be just like Christ, completely innocent. And now we are completely righteous. And that punishment that we were supposed to have because we're robbers, murderers, adulterers, that we're supposed to receive punishment, all that punishment was put on Christ. And when he received all that from on, when he was on the cross, whenever God the Father um, poured out all of his wrath on the Son for us, now we're completely forgiven. So now we live the same kind of life outwardly as the Pharisees, but it's not to earn salvation. It's because from the beginning, we've already confessed we're bankrupt. We need Jesus, and we say... The only hope I have is Christ. Now that you've saved me, I want to do those things. But it's not to earn salvation. It's already been given. I want to do it as a, as a thankful, grateful act of worship to you because you've already saved me. Because my salvation is secure, I don't want to go live a, a life filled with debauchery and sin. Instead, all I want to do is bring you glory with everything I do. I want to do those things, not because I'm earning salvation and God's like, well, I have to save you. Instead, because you saved me, Jesus, I want to do everything I can for you. And when we come into heaven, we say, the only way I can come into heaven is because of Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. And we're entered into his rest. So there's a big difference. On the outside, it looks the same. But on the inside, it's completely different. So because of that, Christians, when we're coming to this particular text that's, that it's addressing people that, have to, that are thinking they can earn their salvation, we know that we don't earn our salvation. So I want you to ask this question instead. As we're going through all of this chapter on these cautions, I want you to ask these questions on these, um, I didn't want to say the number, I'll say it now so you don't freak out. Eight cautions. Don't ca- I'm serious, it's okay. Um, eight cautions. I know that you're like, eight, fud, come on. I- I'm going to go fast. Um, you should ask yourself every time you see one of these cautions, where am I missing it? If I'm a believer in Jesus, and this is, this is a caution that I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to be thinking about, where am I missing it? Where am I being deceived where I might be doing that? And if you're not in Christ, to the rest that, that would say, I'm not a Christian. Um, if you were invited this morning and you would say, uh, I'm not a Christian. What I want you to do is this. This is the main thing I want you to do. I want you to observe Jesus' intolerance of the most, on the outside, moral people in the world. You will never be more moral than them. Which should help you think, you should stop trying to be moral in order to be right with God. You'll never be more moral than them. And if that's the case, then you realize the way to be forgiven, to have a right relationship with God, is not through outward acts. Because none of us will ever be like these people. They were over-the-top ridiculous when it comes to following rules. And I'm not a big rule follower. I really don't like rules. But these, I have children, and one's a big-time rule follower, and I have one that's not a rule follower, and it's amazing. Like, the rule follower's like, she has to follow the rules! And the other one's like, rules, whatever. And they, I mean, it's, it's crazy, like, how, how much they fight. But I'm not a big rule follower, but what I want you to see here is, um, whether you lean that way or not, I want you to see that Jesus is intolerant of people that think that rules saves them. It doesn't. Only faith in Christ saves. And so <clears throat> it's not what you do. Instead, it's faith in Christ. And that alone is what is going to lead to your salvation. So that's, if you're not in Christ, that's what I want you to see over and over. That what's necessary for you this morning is faith. 
faith in Christ. All right, so let's look at verse 1. It says, And Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees. So you have the scribes, the, you know, the, the, the really, really religious people, the one that followed all the rules. They never did anything wrong. And then if you were mega religious, if you were like you know, the cream of the crop, you got to be a scribe. And so Jesus is talking to the scribes and all the rest of you Pharisees. You know, so good, good job. You're, you're really, really a rule follower, scribes. And he's like, all of you people, you, and it says right here, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Very interesting words that he says here. Sit on Moses' seat. And what he's saying is, you scribes, you Pharisees, you religious leaders of these people who are um, the king of Jerusalem, you are trying to take the place or the role of the law as the teacher. That's what you think you do. You, Moses, back in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, Exodus 20, Moses was the one who gave the law in Exodus 20. And so people, when they refer to Moses' seat, that just means the law. That anytime, generally in the New Testament, when Moses is referred to, it's generally talking about the law that was given in Exodus 20. They're kind of synonymous. And so when you're sitting in Moses' seat, that basically means that you are taking the role as the teacher of the law. And he's telling the Pharisees that that's not your job at all. It's not your place at all. Um, they're presuming to have this role. It was not given to them. They're presuming that it is theirs. But it's really just kind of a silly game that they're playing with themselves. Um, and it says, since you do this, in verse 3, so practice and observe whatever they tell you. So Jesus is saying, you, you Pharisees, when you sit in this seat, he's telling the people, the disciples, when you hear them, what I want you to do is practice and observe the things that they tell you, but not what they do. Don't do what they do. And he says, for they preach, but do not practice. So straightforward. Just first caution for us as Christians is this. Um, we, we must watch ourselves in this. Christians should practice what they preach. Christians should practice what they preach. The things, we should not be hypocritical. Now I want to be really careful here. Because the first thing we can say is, well, I'm never perfect, so I'm always hypocritical. I know. I, 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 me too, okay? But what we're saying here is we're, we're recognizing that no one is perfect. But what we are saying is um, when it comes to pursuing holiness, when it comes to being more Christ-like, we should practice what we preach. If we tell people they should do these things, we should pursue those things as best as we can. We should not just say, well, I'm saved. I can do whatever I want. I can go and do, you know... Life of debauchery, whatever I want. Instead, we say, since we've been saved by Christ, all the things that Jesus asked me to do in regard to holiness doesn't save me. I'm doing it as a response of worship, but I'm going to practice what I preach. I'm going to pursue holiness with everything I have. And when I mess up and people see it, I'm going to say, yes, absolutely right. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Jesus saved me. He's perfection. He has declared me righteous. And I'm going to keep trying to do everything I can to pursue holiness. So... Uh, Matthew Henry, when he's talking about pastors who, who live this hypocritical lifestyle or preachers, he says, when in the pulpit they preach so well that it is a pity that they should never come out, but when they're out of the pulpit they live so ill that it is a pity they should never come in. I think that just totally applies to us. As you're living through your life, there should never be like, oh, he talks so awesome, but man, he's not talking. He's pretty terrible. Like, that should not be the case of us. With every fiber of our being, by the power of the Spirit, we as Christians pursue holiness with everything we have, knowing that we won't reach it until we die. But we still pursue it. We practice what we preach. Now, the next thing, the next caution is right here in verse 4. It says they tie up. We're talking about the Pharisees. Talking to the disciples. He's saying these Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. 
And that's basically rules. They just make up rules, and they have the law, the 600 rules, and they put extra rules just to make sure you don't break those rules. So, like, for example, you can't walk a mile. Oh, so just to make sure you don't walk a mile, you can't walk half a mile. And so an extra burden, which is not in the law, but they just do it anyway. And so it says they put these heavy laws and heavy burdens on the people of Israel, saying, follow all these laws, and they lay them down on the people's shoulders. And not only do they do that, but then they say, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So they put these heavy burdens on, and then they have just a, an indifference towards the people. They have no love towards them whatsoever. Here are the rules. Good luck with it. You're supposed to do it. You're supposed to be like me. I can do it all. I'm really disciplined. I'm a Pharisee. So they have no um, love or compassion whatsoever to these people. And so the second thing I want you to see in contrast with that is for Christians then, we need to caution ourselves saying Christians should be then moved with compassion for their struggling fellow man. We don't lay on stuff and not willing to lift a finger. Instead, we're not like that. We come and we show compassion to them whenever there's things going on. The Pharisees were laying down these crushing, burdensome, overwhelming weights on them, and they were unwilling to even lift a finger. This is just amazing, amazing. Um, I would even say hatred, maybe. But it's definitely not being merciful. Now, I want you to see this because I know all of you like are amazing readers of Matthew and you're all thinking, oh, this reminds me of Matthew 11. This is like perfect contrast to Jesus in the gospel in Matthew 11. Exactly. I want you to see that. So we're all going to see that contrast right here. Here it is. In verse 4, this is the, the Pharisees putting heavy burdens, more and more burdens on the people. Follow these rules. These are all the burdens. Be stifled. Be pushed down by these things. Find no relief. Feel the weight. And then there's Jesus In contrast, and this, as I said, Jesus is really in Matthew 23 trying to point this contrast to him. This is what Jesus says in regard to this in Matthew 11, the great gospel call in Matthew 11, 28, where he tells the people, instead of like the Pharisee, he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. All those heavy rules that are being put on to you by the Pharisees, come to me. Come to me instead. Don't listen to them. Come to me and I will give you rest, not dreariness, restlessness, come to me, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. I'm not harsh, I'm gentle. I'm lowly in spirit, and watch this. And you will find rest for your souls. Here it is. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. How how different is that? Pharisees, more burden. I'm not even gonna help you. Jesus, my burden's light. Come to me. So the, the contrast that's being shown to us is this. Jesus takes the burdens of sin and sorrows upon his own shoulders that the Pharisees were putting on the people. That's the big difference. And the difference is rules versus gospel or gospel versus law. So the law or the rules that the Pharisees, they're burdensome, they're tiresome, they're legalistic, they're weary, and they're bondage. But the free offer of the gospel is none of those things. Instead, it's delight, it's joy, it's rest, it's love, it's freedom. There's a huge contrast here between Jesus and these Pharisees. And he's wanting them to see that the contrasts are so startling. The free offer of the gospel is not work, work, work. It's instead come and rest, trust in the work of Christ, and you are forgiven. You are completely um, declared innocent and righteous now. Now, because of that, go live a life of worship. This is such an amazing difference between the Pharisees and Jesus. And so... We don't ever want to be like the Pharisees and show no compassion and not lift a finger. Verse 5, 
takes us into our next caution. It says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. This is so, this is absurd. I'm gonna, we're going to make fun of them in just a second. It's awesome. Um, for they, they make their phylacteries. I know we're all just very familiar with phylacteries. We, we have them back at home in our closet. So I'm just kidding. I'll tell you what they are. Broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor. That's the key right there. They love the place of honor. Um, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi, which means teacher for others. And so that's, that's the five through seven here is the next one. Um, they, verse, look at the very beginning of verse five. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. So literally, it's everyone gather around. I'm about to help someone. Everybody come here. Watch this. Oh, poor person, let me help you. Let me get, and so they give all this money or whatever, and they need to make sure everybody's around before they see it. This is, this is just the opposite of what we're called to as Christians. So let me show you the third caution for us is this. Christians should seek to do good works for others privately. Christians should seek to do good works for others privately. Now, notice that I'm saying seek to do. It doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly every time. There are going to be times where someone needs help, and we're not going to like push them away. I can't. People are watching. No, no. And we're going to accidentally help them. Like, oh, they saw me. God, I, they saw me. I'm so sorry. Forgive me. Like, I wanted to do it in private. It's none of that. Like, what we try to do as much as we can, the whole point of it is we, right there, in verse 6, love the place of honor. We don't want the honor. We don't want the glory. We want it to be Jesus. So as much as we can, and we're not overthinking and going crazy and like hiding behind the corner all stealth, like no one's watching. All right. Drop out the money. It's not, you don't have to be absurd about it, okay? But the point is that the, the posture of our hearts is we don't want the place of honor because Jesus is supposed to get the place of honor. So all the good deeds that I'm going to do, which we talked about last week, Ephesians 2.10, or maybe two weeks ago, Ephesians 2.10, that there has been good works prepared for beforehand from eternity past, that you as a Christian should walk in them. There's, there's good works for every single person here that God has put in front of you that you can walk in them, Ephesians 2.10, all those good works. We're to strive to do those things, and the posture of our heart is, we want God to get the glory here. I don't need the place of honor. I'm going to heaven. Heaven. Like, that's pretty awesome. Jesus can get all the honor here. Because the only reason I'm doing it is because Jesus prepared beforehand that I would do it. So it's silly to think that it's for me. So we're not gathering people around saying, everyone look. I mean, it's that absurd. So here's the, absurd, the absurdity that it, that it went to. The levels is when it says, oh, I don't even know what verse I'm in. Here we go. Verse 5. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Literally, a phylactery is a small leather kind of parchment or box. And they wore it either on their, on their forehead, so, so silly, or on their arm. And the, the bigger the box, the more pious, like the more godly you were. So they just put this big box on their head. Oh, I'm so, I'm so godly. Look at me. My box is huge. Or on their arm. And they would literally walk around. Or the longer the fringe, like the more holy. So like my fringe goes all the way and it sweeps the ground. I clean the ground. I'm so holy as I walk around. Like it's, it's so silly that they would do this. And people like, oh, look at him. Look at that box on his head. He's, he's, so, he's so godly. Like that's the silly absurdity levels that it went to. And, but they were putting those big boxes on their head and the long fringes because they wanted the place of honor. They wanted all the glory. And the point is, is that Christians, the caution for us is that's missing the whole point. We help people because we want Jesus to receive the glory. So that, listen, if you get the glory, then they're going to think that you can save them. 
And that's just a sad deal. You, you can't save them. Jesus saves, not us. So we want Jesus to get the glory because he's the only one that can save them. So Christians should seek to do good works for others, seek to do it as privately as possible, not wanting the glory whatsoever. Um, and you can see here that, uh, <coughs> excuse me, that the, this next section, 8 through 12, kind of, uh, it's the same idea almost as that, as that third one. It says, but you, now he's, when he says you, he's not talking to disciples anymore, but more than likely he's looking straight here at or I'm sorry, he's still talking to his disciples, and he says, but you disciples are not to be called rabbi or teacher, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Listen, don't take that the wrong way. Your kids can call you dad, okay? That's not what he's saying. He's saying that there's no one who has the ultimate place of heavenly father. Don't try to put anybody else as God in your life. Your kids can call you dad. Um, Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor called the Christ. Let's not breeze through verse 10 and miss verse 2. Remember how he told the Pharisees uh, Pharisees and scribes? You act like you're supposed to sit on the seat of Moses. You don't have that right. Now in verse 10 he's gotten to it and he says, Jesus is saying that he's the only one that has the right to sit on the seat of Moses. Where he says right here, um, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. And he's talking about himself. I'm the only one, Jesus is saying, that has the right to sit in the seat of Moses. And he says right here in verse 11 this is in 12, he's said this a couple other times. One time in Matthew 18, 4. One time in Matthew 20, 26, and 27. We'll, we'll look at those. But he says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the way 2026 says it. It says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you will be your servant, and whoever would be first among you will be your slave. And it says it in 18.4 by saying, Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Matthew has this repetition of the idea that what we're supposed to do as believers in Jesus is not seek self-exaltation, but seek to be a servant of other men. So here's the fourth caution for us is this. Christians should not seek self-exaltation. And there's a simple logical reason for this, right? Because he's telling us we're a servant. And in every dynasty, in every single place, you don't see servants kind of brushing aside the king and saying, hey, I'll take some of this exaltation. You can just sit down, king. This is for me now. <laughs> the servant never does that. The servant lives and serves and does everything he can to exalt the king. And since we've been saved by Jesus, it's not like we're begrudgingly saying, well, I've got to exalt Jesus again. Like, we want to. He's like, he saved me. Of course I want to. I want to exalt him, and I want everybody else to exalt him. And so the fourth direction, the fourth caution, again, every single thing that we're going through here, you just need to ask yourself, you're in Christ. Am I doing this? Am I missing it somewhere? Where, am I, where might I be deceived? Are there any places in my life where I'm just being deceived, deceived where I'm putting myself up there to receive a little glory? So Christians should not seek self-exaltation. They should seek for Christ to be exalted. Now, verse 13 is the transition where he quits talking to the disciples. I think they're there, but he directs this language from 13 on straight to the Pharisees, and he starts pronouncing woes. And it's not like, whoa, like W-H-O-A. It's woe, like W-O-E. We don't really say that too much today. Um, We do say the other one, but not this one. A woe is a lament or a wail or a strong uh, declaration of 
an evil that people are doing, or it's a, it's a strong condemnation directed towards people. And that's what he's, he's pronouncing, strong woes, strong condemnations toward these particular people. And if you'll notice, the language is bitingly strong. I mean, very, very, very direct. You think, does Jesus, does he do this? I thought he was meek and mild Jesus. And he's yelling them, saying, hypocrites. And later on, he's going to call them the devil, basically. And so, like, does he really do this? Like, yeah, he does. Jesus when it comes to people who think that they can earn their salvation and fly against every good message of the gospel, which is Jesus offers it freely, anybody that comes against that, those are the people that Jesus speaks strongly towards. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, those who are living really sinful lives receive the grace and mercy of Jesus mostly, right? Those who think that they have a right staying with God because of their performance and are treating others disrespectfully, they're the ones that get the strongest words from Jesus. So here, he starts pronouncing woes. And some of these woes, I'll collapse together, two woes together. Um, There's seven woes. Um, Let me go ahead and show you where the one we're not going to have is. It's in verse 14. If you notice, there is no verse 14. It just goes 13 to 15. Maybe you have a footnote, and the footnote says this, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses.'" And for a pretense, you make long prayers. Therefore, you receive the greater condemnation. Um, more than likely, that's not part of the original Matthean or Matthew verse. Um, they call it an interpolation. Basically, it just means they took something from Mark, took something from Luke, kind of put it together and tried to stick it in there and say it was Matthew, but it's not. Um, I don't think it is. So we're not going to add it into our seven woes away from seminary. All right, so back to this. Um, verse 13, it says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. I love seminary. Just, you know. I don't want to confuse everybody. Woe to you, seminary. Uh, Whoa, what am I saying? (laughs) That's hilarious. All right. I really like seminary. I'm not one of the guys that calls it cemetery. Like, I actually liked it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So he's he's launching into a, a, a pretty straightforward word, calling them hypocrites. And he says, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. This is Really, these people were so religious, they were absolutely assured that they were going to heaven. And he's saying, you're not going, and by your actions and words, you're actually shutting the door in other people. You're supposed to be the gatekeeper that's inviting people in, and you're the ones that's slamming the doors. And he calls them hypocrites here. So the the next caution for us is this. Christians should not make salvation more difficult for people. Christians should not make salvation more difficult for people. The message of the gospel is simple. But it doesn't mean it's simplistic. But it doesn't mean that you have to add on all these things to it to try to make it so um, unable to be grasped. The message of the gospel is simple. How they're doing it is this. They're trying to persuade people that Jesus is not the Messiah and the way to be saved or to go to heaven is through rule keeping so they're shutting the door in people's faces by saying jesus is not the way it's through rules which is the the antithesis of the gospel jesus is the way and it's not through law keeping the law keeping shows you that you're a sinner so that you would confess that you're a sinner and only trust christ and so they were shutting it in people's faces they're trying to persuade them today the way that people make salvation more difficult um, false teachers do this by adding things to the gospel it's um Gospel plus do this, or you have uh, other people like, that are Christians that 
that make salvation more difficult by maybe just leaving, leading inconsistent lives. They, they say they trust Christ and then they just live terribly and they look at that and they say, wait, is he a Christian? Is he not? Is she a Christian? Is she not? It seems like it's supposed to be one thing, but they don't live this way. Or they just don't live grace-based lives. Like Christians should be the most gracious people there are. And if you are just, you're just a big jerk, then you're shutting the door in people's faces. You're not putting on who Christ is. You're not displaying the true nature of Jesus. And so we don't want to make salvation more difficult for people. Instead, we want to live in light of the gospel and freely proclaim the good news of the gospel. Just the simple message that trust Jesus. He's the one who saves. Trust what he's done for you. Confess your sins. That's how you're saved. And don't add on a whole bunch of stuff. And, 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 and. That's, the whole book of Galatians was written to defend against that. So that Christians should not make salvation more difficult. The next one is this. So that's kind of talking about unbelievers. This next one is talking about people that are believers. Look what it says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much as a child of hell as yourselves. I mean, he's not candy-coating the language here whatsoever. He's saying, you Pharisees, your followers, when they follow you, this is generally how it works. When there's a leader, the followers of them are even more crazy. So, like, you have the Pharisees, and these people are going to out-Pharisee the Pharisees. You're, even, you're making people that are more crazy, and they're double the child of hell. And so, <clears throat> the way I think that we can take this as a caution is this. Christians should not corrupt converts. It should not corrupt converts. Let me explain what I mean, because this could be confusing. So I'll give you a little illustration about what I mean. Um, whenever, I was, whenever I was in college, I was saved at a young age at eight. And so I, I was in a youth group, and I grew up in the faith. And there was a particular point at, U, at I was at the University of South Carolina from 18, <clears throat> 18-ish to 21-ish. I'm not going to go into details. My parents listen to this podcast, so I'm just going to leave those out. But basically, the point is this— um, there was a particular point where I was a Christian, but I did not live. I was half-hearted, backslidden, not living for the glory of Jesus. But I still <clears throat> grew up in a church, and it was considered a leader in the church in some respects as I got older in our youth group. You know, you have your youth group. And so um, whenever I would see them or come around them, this was in Columbia, the hottest place on earth, whenever I would see them in the world, uh, whenever I was there, Sometimes I would have conversations with them where they were still kind of looking up to me and knew that I was a, a Christian and knew that I was a follower of Christ and knew that I was kind of a leader in the group. And then they knew some of the things that I was doing. I would, I would freely share with them, like, this is what I'm doing, man. And I would try to make it sound cool. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure that some of, those, some of those students that were a little bit younger than me that were impressionable heard some of those things and thought that that's Okay. And I corrupted them. And even to this day, I, I think that there's some, at age 35, I just talked to a guy the other day that I don't think is walking with Jesus right now. He made his own choices, okay? But at the same time, I, I just wonder, had I had a different kind of conversation with him, if I had not been so backslidden, but had pointed him to Jesus, if his trajectory would be different. Christians should not try to corrupt Knowingly or unknowingly, other Christians, pursue holiness with your life. You just don't know who is looking up to you and is influenced by you. So this is a caution for us. This isn't something we can just kind of cast aside and say, well, I can just look at somebody else. 
And it's really tricky. You know, we can, um, the people that are closer to us, our spouses, our close friends, we can be a little bit more loose with the words we say or the jokes we make. We just don't know what kind of corruption we could be sowing into them. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Only what's profitable, that which is good for building up. It gives grace to those who hear. We should try to, as much as we can, um, build up people. And we don't want to corrupt people with our sin or our words. And this is, I think, what's going on here. This is, I think, a good caution for us. Now, there's a, I generally don't try, well, that's, I'm, never mind. So, <laughs> I was going to say, I generally don't do this, but I do. So, but there's one little thing I want you to see in verse 15 that I think is quite indicting, or at least convicting. Notice, this is a side note, it's not the main point of the text, but notice um, how far the, the zealousy, the, is that the word? The, the zealous behavior of these Pharisees that they have to go make a proselyte, to go evangelize their message, false message. Look what it says. For you travel across sea, and they don't like sea. They remember Jonah, like, no, thank you about sea, uh-uh. But so they, they're not big fans of sea. They were not mariners by any means. It says they travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte they're willing to go to extreme lengths they're so zealous they're willing to go to extreme lengths just to make one conversion and they have a false message we should be zealous we should be extreme because we have the true message if they're willing to go to this length to make one proselyte what should our evangelism look like i just think that we might be missing that and maybe a little too comfortable with our evangelism if it comes my way, if they, you know, knock on my door and say, hi, could you tell me about Jesus? Well, I'll cut off the news for you. What do you, yeah, let me, like, it doesn't happen like that. We have to be as fervent and zealous for evangelism as those who are like this. Because we have the true message of the gospel, the true life-changing message, not a false gospel. Just a side note, I think that's really good for us to learn from. So going into verse 16, um, I'm going to collapse this woe. You can see this woe is 16 to 22 and 23 to 24. I'm going to take both of those woes and give us our next caution. And this is crazy. Let me show you this. It says, woe to you blind guides. So it's a little bit different. Here he calls them blind guides. He's called them hypocrites the whole time. He calls them blind guides here. Blind guide is an oxymoron. It's like ACC football. It doesn't exist. It's an it's a, it's a oxymoron. No one that's blind guides people. No one that plays in ACC is really good at football. Um, I'm just kidding. I couldn't resist. So blind guides who say, I'm an SEC guy, so Gamecocks. Anyway, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, um, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by an oath. So here's what's going on. You have these Pharisees who are taking these oaths and they're trying to parse truth. And there's like, well, what I can do is I'll swear by one thing and that'll be okay. But if I swear the other thing, I won't do that. So I'll just swear by something kind of related to it, near to it. And I'm just kind of going to parse my truths. And the main point that we need to hear is every half truth is a whole lie. End of the story. Jesus has already addressed this back in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, what is it, uh, 34 through 37. And this is what he said. Yeses should be yes, tell the truth. Noes should be no, tell the truth. Don't make these false little oaths where if you have a little wiggle room, you can get out. Don't parse true statements and have a way to get out and say, actually, I swore by this thing and I can get out. That's what's going on here. They're kind of seemingly focused on little details and missing the bigger point is, 
be a truth teller. And so they're having this right here where they're saying, um, in verse 18, you can see it again. If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anybody swears by the gift on the altar, he's bound by it. If you blind men, which makes, the, which makes it greater, the gift or the altar that makes it sacred. Whoever swears by the altar swears by it, and whoever swears by it, by everything. Whoever sweats, swears, sweats, little T looks like they are, by the um, temple swears by it, and him, by him who dwells in it. Basically, he's just saying, quit trying to parse your swears. Like, it doesn't matter. Tell the truth. So they're missing the smaller, um, they're missing the big picture for these little small details. So here's the, I don't know what I'm on, seven. Here's the seventh uh, caution for us as Christians. Christians should not focus on seemingly small details over the big picture. Now don't miss this because I'm saying over. Every detail of the word of God is, is important. So I'm saying, I'm not saying don't focus on details. It's the word, like everything here is important, everything. But we don't focus on little details over the big picture of the Bible, the big picture of everything, which is God saves sinners. So just to give you an instance here, they're trying to parse this. For us, this is how we do. We don't focus on, as an application of here, Christians sometimes don't focus on the small sins, and by not focusing on the small sins, they miss the bigger picture that God has called you to holiness. So we don't focus on things like gossip or gluttony or small white lies or materialism because we think those things aren't important compared to some of the other big sins, but we're missing the big picture of holiness. God's called you to holiness in every area of your life. Even how you eat and a small white lie. Yes, that, those pants look good. Like, say it in a nice way. Don't lie. Materialism. God is concerned about the way we spend our money and it can't all be on us. Don't miss the bigger picture of holiness thinking that smaller things don't matter. And the same is true in this next part here. The, the same idea of Focusing on, on small details and missing the bigger picture. I mean, this is absurd. Look at this in 22, 23. For you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have negated the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. He's saying, you're saying God needs my spice rack to be tithed off. My neighbors have needs, but no, I'm not going to have faithfulness and justice and mercy on them. Instead, I need to focus in on my spice rack. God really needs some more cumin, so let me give him some of that. My neighbors have needs, but ah, spice rack. Like, you're, miss, you're focusing on significantly small little things when you're supposed to be thinking about bigger things. By the way, this verse here on justice, mercy, and faithfulness should remind us of Micah 6, 8. Um, what does God love? Justice. Mercy and those who walk humbly with his God. That's a restatement. That's a FUD version, but it's basically that. Um, and he's saying you're missing these major things. And so I'm just asking, are we, in a sense, um, fumbling around with our spice rack at Remedy, missing the bigger picture of needs at Rock Hill and York County? Are we involved in... Um, gathering together, seeing each other, focusing on those things, maybe making sure we give our tithe and we're here. God's, I'm here, so everything's good. And missing on the opportunities to extend justice, mercy, and faithfulness to our city. And we're not supposed to just come to community groups or come to church and talk about justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Instead, it's supposed to, as we talk about it, drive us out as the church to go do justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Let's not miss 
the big picture here and talk about the little things. And Jesus drives this home with a little uh, word picture by saying, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So that in the idea, that sometimes as they drank wine, they had bugs everywhere. And so a, a bug would go in there like a gnat and they would strain out that gnat to make sure they drank their wine. He's saying, as you're drinking your wine, Spurgeon's kind of saying, when they drank their wine, they were sure to strain out the gnat and not be choked by that little gnat. But they committed a great sin, missing the huge camel in their glass as they drank it down. He says, and still, Spurgeon says, and still there are gnat strainers among us today who apparently have no difficulty in swallowing a camel, hump and all. Pretty convicting, I think. People who are focusing in on, and I'm not saying details are bad, but you're focusing in on them so much that you're missing the big picture. And this is... I think really important for those who fall themselves or fall into what would be the reform camp to be careful of. Don't miss reform theology and be all over it and miss the big picture of the gospel, which is God saves sinners. We cannot miss the big picture by straining gnats that God saves sinners. Let me read something to you by J.I. Packer. This is just awesome. J.I. Packer summarizes the gospel with three words God saves sinners. And he unpacks each word. God, the triune Jehovah, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, power and love to achieve the salvation of a chosen people, the Father electing, the Son fulfilling the, wa- the Father's will by redeeming, the Spirit executing the purpose of the Father and Son by renewing, saves, does everything, first to last, that is involved in bringing man from death and sin to life and glory. He plans it, he achieves it, he communicates redemption, he calls and keeps, he justifies, he sanctifies, and he glorifies. Sinners, men as God finds them guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, unable to lift a finger to do God's will, or better with their spiritual lot, and God comes and saves them. That's just incredible. I love J.I. Packer. You should read him. He's amazing. Um, This is the big picture that we should not miss out on and um, find ourselves focusing in on things and missing that big picture. God has called us to tell people about about Jesus and his gospel. So that's the big woe that they were focusing on and a caution for us. We're going to start at 25 and we're going to collapse these next two together, 25 through 28, woe 5 and 6. Um, it says, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. This is like me taking a cup, and it's just filled with nasty, black, gross gunk. And I take it, and I'm like, clean the outside. I'm like, it's all ready for you. Here you go. You want some coffee? And you're looking at it, you're like... Fud, that's disgusting. You didn't clean. I'm like, yeah, I did. I cleaned the outside. Perfect. What are you kidding me? You can drink totally out of it. And you're like, uh, moron, look in the middle. I'm not touching that. I don't want anything you have to offer. This is what the Pharisees are doing. They're cleaning the outside. On the outside, they have this appearance of acting like they are all about God. But on the inside, they're dark, nasty people. And so he's saying, and here's the big caution for us here. Christians should not think more about Christians should not think more about outward appearance or outward appearances than inward holiness. Than inward holiness. You can see it in 27 and 28. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful. So on the outward, societal morality, you look like you got it all together. 
but theologically you don't, but within are full of dead people's bones and are all uncleanness. You are outwardly appearing righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So Jesus just cuts through it all and says, your outward actions, mean they don't save you and they mean nothing. It's your heart. So looking like you have it all together is not holiness. We're really good at that, right? By your spouse, they can know you, but not know you. Your spouse can know you, but not even know you. And looking like you have it all together and thinking that's holiness, this is, I know this is obvious. God's not fooled by that. You're not like, God's not like, oh, well, Holy Spirit, he looks like he's got it all together down there. I don't know. I mean, I can't see his heart at all. On the outside, everything looks good. Holy Spirit's like, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> that, that's not how it works. He knows exactly what's going on in your heart. Thinking about more of outward appearance than inward holiness before God is futile. So here's the question we should ask ourselves. And l- let me say this first. This can happen knowingly or unknowingly in our hearts. We can think that church attendance and giving is making us look good and that we're right with God. Knowingly or unknowingly, we can think that we're right. So anything we're doing, this is the question we should ask ourselves. This is what we should say. Um, it's the way to keep ourselves from having the outward appearance and not the internal beauty that we're saying. Am I doing this for Christ or me? The good work that I'm about to do, this outward appearance that I'm trying to look all right for, is this happening because I want Christ to receive the glory or me? We don't get cleansed from the outside and work in to get a pure heart. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus comes and cleanses you from the inside, changes your heart, and then the outward actions change. That's the gospel. And they have it in reverse. And he's telling them, outwardly, you appear beautiful, but only outwardly. And none of us want to just be beautiful on the outside. Every single one of us really wants to be loved and be made beautiful and be made clean on the inside. We're all honest. We know that's what we want. And this only comes from Christ. He's the only one that can declare you completely righteous and beautiful on the inside because of the gospel. So the the caution is focusing more on outward appearance rather than inward holiness. D.A. Carson says, external religion instead of the inner person is what's going on. They appeared magnificently virtuous, but were actually contaminating the people. It wasn't just happening to them, it was happening to the people around them as well. Now, going into this last woe, this is the eighth woe in verse 29. I'm out of cautions. I don't even know how to make this a caution. This is just Jesus talking straight to them, giving them the last woe or even prophecy of how they're going to murder him. This is what it says in 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. So they have these prophets in the Old Testament. They were literally recreating them, and they were saying, we, we love the prophets so much, and if we had been the people at the time, we would have never murdered the prophets. And Jesus was like, yes, you would have. You would have killed the prophets just like they did. And so it says, you 
hypocrites. You build these tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of the fathers, we would not have taken part with them and shed in the blood of the prophets. Thus you are witnessing against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Yes, you would have, is what he's saying. We're going to take this a step further and indict ourselves a little bit. It's going to be good. But first he's saying, yes, you would have. You would have, you would have done it. And then he says, fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. That is clearly pointing back to Genesis 3, to the serpent in the garden. And he's saying, you are a child of the devil. That's who you are. I mean, amazingly strong language from Jesus to them. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Their, their death is sure if they continue in this path. And then verse 34 is a switch. So he's saying, you would have killed the prophets. And then he points to the future and he says, and you're going to kill the prophet, the Messiah. And he's talking about himself. Therefore, I send you as prophets and wise men and scribes, some of you who will kill and crucify. Some of you will flog in your own synagogues and persecute from town to town. He's speaking of future sense and he's saying, you're going to kill me and you're going to kill those that come after me, my disciples. He's pointing to the future saying that they're going to do it. And here's where they even, there's a prophecy that comes true. This very prophecy comes true just a few chapters later in Matthew 27, 25. The Pharisees have gotten the people and they're all there. And this is what they're saying when they want Jesus to be crucified. They're, say, they're saying, what are we going to do? This is going to happen. Uh, Pilate's saying, I'm not going to do this. And they say in verse 25, and all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Just a few chapters later prophecy fulfilled and they're doing it and he's telling them this is what's going to happen to y'all i don't even know how to make this a caution this is a prophecy that this is going to happen he says the verse 35 so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth and what he's going to do right here is going to talk about abel and zechariah and the hebrew bible it's arranged a little bit differently than ours it begins with genesis and ends with second chronicles so he's going to start with abel the first person that was killed for faith in god and take Zechariah, the last person that was killed for faith in God in the, in the Hebrew Bible. And he's going to say from both of them, he's going to say that from the innocent blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So he pronounces to them their future. Condemnation is coming to those, to those who kill the Messiah. And then we have this last little, and I'm, I'm so thankful that the Holy Spirit added this last little glimmer of hope and love in verse 37, 38, and 39. Last little piece of hope held out to those that will trust Christ. And you can just see, after he gives this amazingly strong language to them, still the Messiah overflows with love. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, talking to them, the city who kills the prophets, stone those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hand gathers a brood under her wings. He's saying, if you would repent now, even now, Jerusalem, I'm showing you how much I love. If you would repent now and come, I would gather you, I would forgive you, and I would bring you to my side, and you would experience life forever. But you would not. Don't be, if you're not a, a believer in Jesus, don't believe, be one of these people that says, no, I will not come receive forgiveness now. 
He's saying, come right now. Even now, as, as, as much as you walk in sin, I will gather you right now. Confess your sin. Trust Jesus. Believe what he did on the cross for you. Receive forgiveness. Receive the declaration of innocence. He will gather you now in like a hen gathers her brood. You will receive forgiveness in Christ. This amazing, amazing show of mercy after he excoriates them. And it says in 38, See your house is left to desolate. To be desolate. So he's telling Jerusalem, you won't come. And destruction, desolation is now what's going to happen. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's speaking of the second coming, often known as the parousia. He's saying, this is the very end of the conversations Jesus has with the religious leaders. We've seen it all through Matthew and it ends right here. And he said, if you don't trust, if you don't confess, if you don't come to Christ, you won't see me again until the second coming. And it'll be too late. And it says in 24-1, he says, he left the temple. It's the last time. That was it. And so to conclude, I think this is where we all need to land. Christian or non-Christian, we are the Pharisees. We don't need to miss that. Every single one of us are like them. Our hearts would have murdered the Messiah. If we were there, we would have done it. John Stott says it this way. Until you see the cross as done by you, you will never appreciate that it was done for you. We have to see that that's who we are. Bankrupt. I would have done it. Forgive me. And the mercy is... He's saying, yes, I will gather you. If you confess your sin, yes, I will gather you. I will forgive you and call you my child. But we have to see ourselves as them. We must see it and realize, but because of our rebellion, we were there when the murder happened. Don't hear, please don't hear at the end of your life from Jesus looking at you and saying, I would have gathered you, but you would not. Please don't hear that. Come today. He's extending to you forgiveness right now. This is the last thought I'll leave with, and I don't want you to miss this. Condemnation is sure. He, he ends talking about the second coming, where he is the consuming judge and he's the welcoming king in both senses. For those that are in Christ or not. And so we need to see this. We need to say condemnation is absolutely sure for every single person in this room. If you're not in Christ. And when he comes again, he will be the condemning judge for those. But here's the the best news ever. Every single person in the room, even though condemnation is sure, salvation is possible for everyone in this room. And you will not receive the condemning judge, but the welcoming, welcoming king. Salvation is possible for every single person here. So trust him. Put your faith in his work for you on the cross. And be forgiven. Because he will gather you. Don't hear at the end. You would not. We're going to go into a time of response. If you are a believer, I want you to just consider these eight things. Where are you falling short? Where do you need to... Not be deceived. Pray through it. Stand and just give Christ the glory that in the gospel you are forgiven 
And because of the Holy Spirit, you can pursue holiness in those things. You have the victory. Pursue it. It's yours. There's no question. And in response, we should worship Jesus because of that. If you're not in Christ, this is what I want you to do. Come find me. I'll be in the back 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 there somewhere. Come to me and I'll talk to you about how you can be a believer now. You can be gathered in this morning forever. If you don't want to talk to me, talk to the person you came with. They would love to buy you lunch and tell you how to be a believer. They would love it. I'm going to pray, and then we'll go into a time of response. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. I pray, God, that all the things that I've said that were distracting, you would remove those things out of people's hearts and minds and help them focus in on you and your word and your gospel, and that they would be tenderhearted towards you right now and trust you. For those that are Christians, they would rejoice in the gospel that though they are pursuing holiness and, it's not holiness and it's not perfect, that they are forgiven and it's guaranteed to them and they would rise worshiping, repenting of the things where they're not pursuing holiness and rise worshiping you. And for those that aren't believers, Lord, that you would regenerate their hearts, make them born again right now, help them see their need for Jesus, confess their sins, come to him right now and become a believer and eternally now change kingdoms forever this morning do that this this very moment we pray these things in Jesus name amen